Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 88, Spates, Three Men Walk Into a Bar. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we discussed the brewing industry as it was in Dunedin prior to the founding of Spates. We went over some of the social and economic factors that influenced the industry, as well as met some of the major players on the Dunedin beer scene. Today, with all that background in mind, we're going to properly crack into our story from Spates's humble beginnings. Quote, Rattray Street, from the site of the Shamrock or thereby, was a dark and dense grove of timber, which, had it remained to this day, might have become associated with superstition and foul deeds. End quote. This quote from James Barr's The Old Identities is the earliest description we have of the site where the Spates Brewery would be constructed. As it mentions, the site was heavily forested, until the trees were cut down by Europeans to put the Hamburg Hotel and a few houses on it in the 1850s. Just down the street was also the Shamrock Hotel, referred to there as the Shamrock. These were the first buildings on the site that were associated with alcohol. But the first buildings related to brewing wouldn't be those made by spates. In 1860, a man called George Duncan became the owner of a large portion of the Rattray Street area in central Dunedin. If you're looking at a map, the area we are talking about is basically entirely covered by the modern Spates Brewery on the eastern side of the road. At the time, it was a lot more sparse, with the Hamburg, Shamrock and residential houses scattered around a bit. Duncan was the owner of a flour mill, and he didn't do much with the Rattray Street site for a couple of years. In 1862, he decided to expand his business to include a brewery, which he named Well Park. The main brewery itself was located on the other side of town, actually across the road from the Water of Leith Brewery run by Marshall and Copeland, which sat next to the river that gave it its name. For those who are living in Dunedin, the Water of Leith Brewery was located on the current site of Galaxy Books, or at least current as of time of recording. For Duncan, the site must have been a bit small to contain all the necessary facilities needed, because he offered a 13-year lease on the lower part of Rattray Street to Well Park. That is to say, he leased it to himself, as well as his brother-in-law and partner in the business, James Wilson. At Rattray, they built a bottling house, a bond store, and a malt house. Hopefully, from two episodes ago, you should know what a malt house is. It's where the malt is made. The bottling house should also be pretty self-explanatory. It's where they would bottle their beer from the kegs it was brewed in on the other side of town. This was slightly unusual, since, as far as I am aware, it was not uncommon to outsource the bottling to other companies who specialised in that field. But perhaps Well Park had enough capital from its owners to be able to keep it in-house. The Bond store has a slightly less obvious purpose if you aren't familiar with the concept. It's basically a warehouse with special legal rules around customs duties. 
It's often where goods of all kinds would be stored before they were released for export, or if being imported, released to the purchasing company. In 1863, a year after entering the beer market, Duncan granted a 14-year lease to a man and his family to build their home behind the Hamburg Hotel and Well Park buildings. This man had arrived in the colony a few years prior, and he had a sharp tongue along with good business sense. So he would be eventually hired by Well Park to be one of their travelling salesmen, known as a traveller. This man was none other than James Spate. Mr Spate was born in Wakefield, Yorkshire in 1834. He was the son of a dyer and likely had a pretty good education, perhaps even having some experience working in an office, which would have helped him get the job at Well Park. He and his wife, Mary Jane, arrived in Aotearoa in 1861, initially arriving in Littleton and then travelling to Dunedin. We don't know why James and his family decided to come to the colonies, but it stands to reason it was due to any of the usual reasons. A new start, seeking better opportunities, adventure, seeking religious freedom, familial issues, or more. We do know he travelled with two daughters as well, one being an infant and the other being a bit older. Historians aren't sure who the older girl is, but it's thought she possibly could be a daughter that died on the voyage. Upon arriving in Dunedin, they had six more children, with one dying in infancy, which, as I'm sure you're aware, wasn't too uncommon. The family were Protestants, which may have had an influence on why they chose Dunedin. Specifically, they were Congregationalists, with Mary Jane belonging to a church on Moray Place. This building is still standing in Dunedin, but is now a motel called Chapel Apartments. Apparently, Mr and Mrs Spate were quite strict with their kids, with one of their daughters being called home during school so that she could close a door she had left open in the house. It was sometime in the early to mid-1870s that Spate would get the traveller job for Well Park. And it's here that he would meet the other two founders of the brewery that would bear his name. Charles Greenslade was born in 1843 in Devon, England. We don't know too much about his childhood, but when he left school, we know that he became a merchant selling grain, which would serve him well in the future, as this job is probably where he learned all about milling and malting. He immigrated to Aotearoa sometime around 1863, when he was about 20 years old. But rather than landing in Littleton, near Christchurch, which was a popular port for recent arrivals, he instead first set foot in Bluff, near Invercargill. He decided to stay there for a bit and eke out a living as a carrier, transporting goods to the Wakatipu goldfields using a bull-powered wagon. The job though, to put it bluntly, was a bit shit. The road between Invercargill and Kingston, on the southern tip of Lake Wakatipu, was made of dirt, which was not super good with the unpredictable southern weather, with rain making the track muddy, slowing down any travellers. Especially ones with bull-drawn carts. The Kingston Flyer, the famous train, was still a few decades away, so if the weather wasn't favourable, the trip could take up to three weeks. For comparison, if you drove today from Invercargill to Queenstown, which is further away than Kingston, it would take about two hours. 
Perhaps unsurprisingly, after 18 months of this, Greenslade had had enough, and like a true Invercargillite, headed towards what he hoped would be better opportunities in Dunedin. Weirdly though, he must have taken his time, or gotten into a spot of bother, cause by the time he reached Milton, still about 50 kilometres from his destination, he ran out of money. Thankfully, he was able to take on some temporary jobs and used his milling skills working in a bakery, which managed to pay for the rest of the distance. Once he had finally reached Dunedin, he moved out to Waikowaiti to work in milling, which is where he met his wife, Caroline. He returned to Dunedin proper in 1868, and made the career shift to becoming a full-time maltster. Initially, Greenslade worked for the Red Lion Brewery, not to be confused with the more well-known brand Lion Red, which is different. The next year, he became the maltster for Well Park Brewery, whose malt house, of course, was currently located on Rattray Street, right next to the Spate family home. The third and final founder was William Dawson. Born in 1852 in Aberdeen, Scotland, Dawson was probably the most familiar of the trio with beer and its production, since his father was a brewer by trade, teaching him from a young age. In 1872, Dawson went to Burton-on-Trent, a rather legendary place for British beer at the time, as it was where all the best beer came from. There, he continued his studies to learn techniques and tips from some of the top brewers in the empire. He would later use this knowledge when he became a brewer in his own right in Edinburgh. Dawson didn't stay there long though. At some point, he decided that New Zealand was where he wanted to be, and so he found himself in Port Chalmers, not far from Dunedin. We don't know whether his choice to go straight to Dunedin was a conscious one, like the other two, but it would make sense, since the town was a Scottish settlement, so it was likely he wanted to be with his fellow countrymen, and possibly even knew some people who had immigrated already. The story goes, he left Scotland with £100 cash and a gold watch. By the time he reached Aotearoa, he had spent all the money and had to pawn the watch due to lack of employment. Thankfully for him, his skills were in high demand, being possibly one of, if not the most skilled brewer in Otago at the time. As such, he found a natural fit at, you guessed it, Well Park Brewery. Those political, social and economic factors that we discussed last episode are what made the environment right for a venture like Spates. But just because the conditions are right for your success, doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Thankfully, they were a perfect trio, in that, when looking at them collectively, they quite conveniently had all the skills needed to brew and sell their own beer. Greenslade would turn the grain into malt, Dawson would turn that malt into beer, and James would sell that beer for cold, hard cash. Or sometimes he wouldn't sell it, as we will see. What was even better was that these guys worked for the same company, meaning they all knew each other fairly early on, and James even lived right next to where Greenslade was working. What I'm trying to say is that it was a bit of luck that the three exact people that could probably make a venture like Spates work 
we're actually in the right place at the right time all together. What's also quite interesting is that they were all very different in age. James was 42, Greenslade 33, and Dawson 24. But they all seemed to have gotten along and were apparently pretty good mates. However, these guys didn't just meet up one day and decide to go it alone from James Wilson, who was by now the sole owner of Well Park. They may have talked about it on their lunch breaks, but having already got half-decent jobs and there being a lot of strong competition in the market already, including their own boss, the trio probably decided against it. The actual catalyst that led to the formation of Spates was Wilson's decision to build a malt house on the same site as the main Wellpark brewery across town, meaning that the one on Rattray Street, where Greenslade worked, now was no longer needed. We aren't sure how or when they initially met up and decided on their course of action, but you can probably see where this is going. The three soon-to-be founders approached Wilson, asking if they could purchase the malt house, bond store, and bottling house with the intent to use them to start their own brewery. They even offered Wilson a stake in the venture, which initially seems like a way to butter him up since this would be adding more competition. But Wilson would actually bring a wealth of experience to the business, which would obviously be very helpful. From Wilson's side, he would of course get a new business with hopefully a healthy income. In general though, the trio did respect their boss quite a lot, so this offer was as much a goodwill gesture as anything else. In the end, Wilson declined the offer of partnership, but he was happy to lease them the land and buildings, and later sell them to the trio outright. You might think that there was a bit of tension between them. As I mentioned, Wilson was setting himself up for some competition, but actually, he was pretty chill about the whole thing, wishing them well and even giving them some help where he could. The only other person the trio would bring on staff initially was Cooper John Campbell, who would remain at Spates until his death in 1903. A Cooper, by the way, is someone who makes kegs, casks and that sort of thing. The acquisition of the Rattray Street site was a significant boost to getting their venture started, as the buildings already contained nearly all the equipment they would need. The malt house in particular was said to be quite a significant building, having gotten into the paper a few years earlier. Quote, The whole of the malt used in this brewery, Well Park, is manufactured by the firm at their premises in Rattray Street. The buildings consist of a brick structure, inside of which are the malting floors, bins, lofts, kiln and business offices. The quantity of malt produced per annum is about 20,000 bushels, and beyond supplying their own wants, they send considerable quantities to up-country brewers, as well as to various places on the west coast and in the North Island." End quote. Making around 720,000 litres of malt every year was nothing to snuff at. In fact, Well Park had produced more than they needed, sending the rest to other breweries around the country. Which gives you an idea of the size and production output of these buildings. And the Spates gang had them all to themselves. The lease started on the 1st of May 1876, which is considered to be the official beginning of James Spate & Co., with the site itself being called the City Brewery. 
Although we don't know exactly why he gave his name to the company, James Spate took on the more business aspects of the company, such as the finances, marketing, sales, and was company chairman. So he was basically the head of the company. However, James was actually the minority shareholder compared to Greenslade and Dawson. Of the 501 pound shares, Greenslade and Dawson took 200 each, and James took 100. James was a bit more cautious and didn't want to put all of his eggs in one basket, if the brewery turned out to be a dud. Spoilers, I guess, but the venture was a success, and he did increase his share a bit later on to be on par with the others. But he had other investments going on as well, just in case. Said investments involved James taking out a mortgage on his house to buy 271 acres of land in the Catlins, and another 60 acres near modern Orokunui. Both of these were heavily forested and hard to get to, so the idea was that once the infrastructure was in place to allow easy access, he could chop the trees down to increase the value of the property for resale, or build something on it, and sell the mostly manuka timber for a profit as a bonus. James Spate and co cracked into production almost straight away, and produced their first batch on the 4th of April 1876. You may notice that this was one month before the trio actually were given official lease of the property, and this was even two months before they got their brewer's license. It was risky, but they were keen to get brewing as soon as possible. The faster they made beer, the faster they could pay any loans they had to take out. The whole operation to begin with wasn't quite as sophisticated as the Well Park guys, partly on account that all the fermenting and brewing had to occur in the same building. So a malt house it was no more, the malting being done on Hope Street a few blocks over, with another building down the road that had a cellar that could hold 600 hogsheads of beer, that building being owned by a shoe importer. For anyone not familiar with brewing, a hogshead is not going to mean much to you. And fair enough. It's a really old term that is still in use today, that is a standard unit of measurement when it comes to brewing. Specifically, it's a unit of volume, which equates to about 245 litres. So that cellar, which can hold 600 hogsheads, is about 147,000 litres. I'm not going to do the conversion every time we mention it, just because we are going to mention hogsheads a lot, but hopefully that gives you a rough idea of the scale. For comparison, the direct fire tank that Dawson had to make beer in could hold about 2,940 litres, or 12 hogsheads which was later expanded to hold 18 hogsheads. Although we don't know the first day that Spates went on sale, we do know that the first mention of the brewery was in the Otago Daily Times on the 17th of June 1876, the day after they got their brewing licence. The first few years were tough on James Spate & Co., as they were competing with about a dozen other breweries in town, including Well Park and Water of Leith. 
Those breweries were quite big, both in finances and staffing compared to Spates, who were relatively small with only a few employees, such as a Cooper, Salomon, Drayman, and a Clark. The economy of scale that the larger breweries had was enormous, and so each pint sold for them was much more profitable than each pint sold for Spates. In fact, sales were initially so low that sometimes wages weren't able to be paid, and Greenslade even had trouble feeding his children. Him and Dawson did most of the manual labour themselves, with James mostly out and about trying to make sales. This was fairly similar to what he was doing when he worked for Well Park, travelling to publicans, that is, the owners of pubs, and trying to convince them that Spates is the one that they should sell to their customers. This meant that James was out of the office or even out of town quite often, as telephones weren't a thing and publicans wanted to be able to meet face-to-face with their suppliers. And naturally, share a drink of what they might be buying. Another strategy that James employed was taking a cask out onto the streets of Dunedin and just offering up freebies to anyone who passed by. Unfortunately, the booze that James was drinking, probably nearly daily, was extremely strong and eventually it did a number on his health. Despite these hurdles, in 1879, Spate's strong ale was highly commended at an international exhibition in Sydney. This saw a 50% increase in sales, which gave the trio the confidence to expand their enterprise with a new building. This building was to be a new brew house, so that they no longer had to use the old Wellpark malt house like they currently were. It had been quite cramped with all the other parts of the process that had to be in there, so having a dedicated structure for brewing would give them some breathing room and allow them to be more efficient. It was to be built at the back of the Rattray Street section and made of brick. It must have impressed the trio quite a bit, because James, Greenslade and Dawson all commissioned its designer to build them new homes. The building was erected rather quickly, as its first brew was in September 1880, a year after the Sydney exhibition. The Malt House produced its last brew a month earlier in August, so undoubtedly there was a flurry of work to move all the equipment needed into the new brew house. This space was a much needed upgrade, with a new, much larger kettle that could brew 50 hogsheads worth of beer, compared to the previous 18, and was heated via a steam coil, rather than fire. However, initially they couldn't make full use of it, as they were restricted by the 36 hogshead fermenting tun, which is where the wort was sent after the kettle. This is where yeast would be added and allowed to ferment for a couple of days before being put into casks. Up until this point, Spates had been importing their hops from overseas, like most breweries in Aotearoa. However, in 1875, they managed to find a local supplier based in Nelson, and from then on, they used a blend of Nelson hops and imported. From this, Spates made four main types of beer. Their lead brew was Triple X Ale, which was extremely bitter. 
The second was the same ale, but with twice the hops, called quadruple X ale. The other two were a stout and the strong ale that won the award in the Sydney exhibition. Dawson's favourite to brew was apparently the stout, as he enjoyed experimenting with new techniques and ingredients, and that beer gave him the most room to let his imagination run. Ingredients he tried were things like juniper berries, treacle, and licorice. For the first few years since Spates' founding in 1876, business was relatively quiet. The trio and their staff worked diligently to put out the best beer they could and improve on it. But compared to other brewers in town, they were still relatively small fry. Even when you take into account the extra sales that came off the back of the Sydney exhibition. The latter half of 1880 is where shit really started to kick off, and is where we get one of the most iconic symbols in New Zealand branding. The Melbourne exhibition was held that year, the first World's Fair in the Southern Hemisphere, which showcased all sorts of random stuff from nations all over the world. Spates sent a few casks of their beer as part of a bunch of contests being held there pitting international brews against each other. Although there was lots of competition, some from renowned brands at the time, Spates had a bit of an advantage. Other brands based in Europe or the US had to ship their casks to the other side of the world, meaning their beer had to be able to survive the journey. This meant it may not have tasted quite as good as it would do normally, due to all the preservative that was added. Spates didn't have that problem, since they only had to get it over the ditch, meaning the beer was fresher. In the end, Spates won two golds and four silvers in the various competitions. This saw Spates' sales double yet again over the next couple of years, and they would go on to win many other gold awards. Their next came only a couple years later, in the 1882 Christchurch International Exhibition, which saw them win two more golds. This of course increased their sales and brand recognition significantly, to the point where an expansion was once again needed. Soon after, a four-storey building was erected on the south side of the brew house on Rattray. The designer of this building, funnily enough, was the same one who designed First Church, a prominent Presbyterian church in the centre of town, Larnox Castle, essentially a rich guy's mansion on the Otago Peninsula, and Otago Boys High School. This building, unlike the others, had a basement that was used as the cellar along with the ground floor, while the upper floors were used for malting. The cellars were put to use right away, but the malting floors needed a kiln, which would be provided a little bit later. Interestingly, the building that was previously on the site of the new cellar-slash-malt house was a pub, and the owners of the land were the Presbyterian Church, which gave some ammo to the Anglicans. You see, the Anglicans liked to toss some criticism at the Presbyterians for preaching against the vice of alcohol despite their land previously contributing to its consumption and now to its production, along with the fact that they were making money off of it the whole time. The Cellar Slash Malt House is now known as Cellar One and is the oldest building still standing on the modern Spates Brewery. It's the one at the back with the arched roof. 
Something else that's a bit interesting is that Spates was the first brewery in Dunedin that didn't have its own private water source. All the others had their own wells or got it directly from a stream. Dunedin had a reticulated water supply, that is to say its modern water supply network since 1867, and this is initially what Spates was made from. Essentially, tap water. From 1883 onwards though, a new water source was used from a well they dug off-site, which led to an underground aquifer, and was the first time that Spates was made with well water. Despite these improvements and the awards that Kiwi beers had won, not all were convinced that beer from the colonies was better or even as good as continental beer, that is to say, beer from Europe. On the 5th of October 1882, the Otago Daily Times published an article claiming that continental beer was, quote, not nearly equal to the best English beer, end quote. The article basically just talks about how colonial beer isn't that good, because it tastes kind of weird from all the sugar in it. Quote, as long as the brewers continue this practice for whatever reason, they will fail to produce the best possible beer that could be brewed in New Zealand. End quote. The article seems to imply that brewers in Aotearoa do have access to good local ingredients. It even specifically references Nelson's hops. But that part of the reason that New Zealand beer wasn't very good was because brewers weren't using those ingredients, and instead were using imported stuff. James Spate was very offended by the whole thing, and wrote a letter to the ODT. But something went awry there, and a few days later, an advertisement appeared in a rival paper. Quote, Newspaper Fairness, to the editor of the Saturday Advertiser. The Otago Daily Times of Thursday published a leading article which endeavoured to show that colonial beer will not be a comparison with English beer, and that it is unwholesome. Now, as our firm took at the Melbourne Exhibition two first and four second prizes in competition with many British, continental, American and Australian brewers, we thought such an article should not be allowed to pass without contradiction. We accordingly forwarded the following note to the editor of the Otago Daily Times. To the editor, Sir, we read your article this morning with astonishment. The best reply to it is that our beers took at the Melbourne exhibition no less than two first and four second prizes. By inserting this, you will oblige, yours etc, James Spate and Co. End quote. So basically, James had written this letter to the ODT, originally countering their article by saying that they had won numerous awards, so the paper was full of it. He then asks them to put this letter in the paper. That's what he means by inserting this, you will oblige. So why was James having this rant in a rival newspaper, the Saturday Advertiser? Well, he details that in the next part of the ad. The ODT did not oblige to insert the letter or even any of the details within. Instead, James got a simple reply from the editor. Just a single sentence. Quote, This is too cheap an advertisement. End quote. As you might imagine, this did not go down too well. 
The rest of James's letter to the advertiser then goes on, quote, In order to show that we have no desire to obtain advertisements on the cheap, we now request the editor of the Saturday Advertiser to insert this communication in your advertising columns for three months. End quote. So to break this down, James was putting the ODT on blast in a national newspaper. And since they called him cheap, he was going to pay for the privilege for three months just out of spite. What a fucking legend. Funnily enough, James Spate wasn't the only one that was pissed off about this. I found two other letters that actually were printed in the ODT in response to the article. One of those even being from James Wilson of Well Park. And boy, does he let rip. Quote, Sir, your leader of the fifth cannot be allowed to pass unchallenged. To anyone conversant with the brewing trade, it is evident that you have written on the subject without any knowledge of the matter. Your arguments have no foundation and show complete ignorance of the question. You make assertions without reasoning and your summing up is simply this. Colonial beer is bad. You have adduced nothing to refute or prove wrong, unless it be the use of sugar in colonial breweries. You have not shown that its use in the manufacture of beer has any deleterious effect, and before assailing such an important industry in the manner you have done, you should have placed yourself in a position to substantiate your theory. End quote. I absolutely love that this basically reads like a modern letter to the editor, just old-timey. To translate, Wilson picked up on the same thing I did, that their only argument was that the use of sugar is what made colonial beer bad in their eyes, and to boot, they had provided no evidence to prove the sugar was the problem, if there even was a problem. The letter is actually much longer, talking about how expert brewers held the opposite opinion to the ODT, that a bit of sugar was actually good. Wilson also goes into the reasons why sugar is used, disproving a rumour that it was a replacement for the more expensive malt. He adds some discussion about the alcohol percentage in English versus colonial beers, kind of saying that English beers will get you drunker since they have more alcohol and as such are less quote-unquote wholesome, which is something else that the original article went on about. He actually has quite a lot more to say, but we've already gone on enough of a tangent, so if you want to read the original ODT article and some of the responses to it, I'll post a link to them in the show notes. In a, what I can only guess, a final middle finger to the ODT, from this point on, Spates regularly advertised their awards in the papers. For the last wee while, it was go, go, go for the Spates crew. But in 1883, there was a depression on, and combined with increased local competition, sales had taken a bit of a hit, which is where they would stay for about five years. It wasn't enough of a dive that they had to shut up shop, but enough that could be felt. However, this didn't seem to worry the trio all that much, as the production team had been pushing themselves hard to keep up with demand for the last few years, so this actually allowed them to slow down and relax a bit. In fact, what we see during this period is that despite there being a depression causing many breweries to close, the national production of beer increases, 
meaning breweries were getting more efficient with their processes. Probably given the slowdown, during this time there were a number of social events for spates, such as the yearly company picnic, which was big enough that it got a newspaper article in 1884, attracting, quote, between 300 and 400 people, end quote. They also had a rugby match with Marshall and Copeland's Water of Leith Brewery. Despite Spates getting the lead in the first half, Marshall and Copeland managed to get the upper hand in the second half to get the win. During the game, the industrial school band played, even though, quote, a very cold wind was blowing. The little fellows stuck to their work bravely and produced some capital music, end quote. As the game went on, other staff members went around the spectators and gathered some money for charity. All three of Spates's founders were interested in sports, but for them, their game of choice was bowls. James Spate and Greenslade were presidents of the Caledonian Bowling Club, and Dawson was later a patron. This club remained active until 2014, when the Dunedin City Council sold the land it was on. Both Greenslade and Dawson were president of the New Zealand Bowling Association as well. Their involvement in the club was part of the wider Caledonian society, which all three founders held senior positions in. The society organised a bunch of sports tournaments, with Greenslade always judging the wrestling in the Caledonian games, and was generally a kind of high society club for Scotsmen to get together and hang out. The society, established in 1862, also had heavy involvement in the establishment of the University of Otago in 1869. However, the society was effectively disbanded in 2020. Although the brewery was their main source of income, the trio were involved in more public jobs as well, such as James being an officer in the volunteer forces, a prelude to the modern New Zealand army. In 1885, Dawson was elected to the Dunedin City Council, and this meant he spent less and less time in the brewery, as his duties required him to be elsewhere. This of course left the brewery without a head brewer, but he made sure that Spates wouldn't do without, putting the job in the capable hands of the next best person, his father. By this point, the parents of all the founders now lived in Dunedin. Both the Dawsons were assisted in their brewing by James's son, Charles, who had begun a brewer's apprenticeship in 1881. Keep his name in the back of your mind. He will be coming back. The beers that the three brewers were putting out were, thankfully, still getting good reviews, where a chemist in Glasgow, quote, pronounced it one of the finest beers he ever analysed, end quote. Despite this, sales were still rather slow, but they expanded their market a little bit more to include Auckland, where they managed to get a sole bottler for that region. Unfortunately, it wasn't long until tragedy struck. James's health had been deteriorating for some time, where he developed cirrhosis of the liver and dropsy, most likely as a result of his excess drinking back in his travelling days trying to sell beer to clients. On the 16th of August, 1887, James Spate died. He was 53. His shares in the triumvirate of the Spates brand were given to his widow, Mary Jane, with Greenslade taking over James's role as chair of the board and manager of the brewery. It was also around about this time that Dawson was elected as mayor at the age of 35, making him one of Dunedin's youngest ever mayors. 
James had overseen the Spates brand as a relatively small brewery compared to some of the others throughout New Zealand, not holding nearly as much brand recognition as it does today. As a somewhat cruel irony, what they didn't know is that the brewery he had given his name to was about to kick off and become Dunedin's top brewery, a title that it would hold for over 100 years. Up until this point, Marshall and Copeland were the owners of Dunedin's leading brewery, the Water of Leith. In 1878, they bought a failed brewery on Cumberland Street, just across the road from the train station. For whatever reason, they decided that they would move their main operation from Great King Street on the other side of town to the newly acquired site. This cost them a fair amount of money and strained their coffers, which, along with the death of Marshall in 1883, became just a bit much, leading them to a slow death and finally closing in 1887. The reason Marshall and Copeland were the guys to beat was that their product was sold all across the country, and even as far as Australia, Fiji, and Hawaii. If you remember from a couple of episodes back, this was unusual since beer didn't tend to keep all that well, unless you put a fair amount of hops into it. So not many breweries were able to leverage the lucrative export market in the way that Marshall and Copeland did. This allowed them to ride out most of the storms they had come across. All storms, except this one, and that lucrative export market had now opened up somewhat upon their closing. However they managed it, Spates took a fair share of that now open market, putting them ahead of most other Dunedin breweries. And from there, the sales just kept increasing year on year, with more and more Spates beer being shipped outside of Otago. A lot of this success was apparently credited to Peter Wilson, the main traveller for Spates, who was actually living in James Spates' old house on Elm Row, a street or two over from the brewery. With increased sales came a greater need to expand the capabilities of the company, and thus more buildings and facilities were needed, creating a flurry of construction over the next few years. More office space was built in 1888, and during the excavation of the foundations, another aquifer was found, directly beneath the brewery. This was great because it meant that Spates would have their own private water supply for the first time. However, for now, they had bigger things to take care of, so the project was set aside. Around this time, the old Well Park Malt House was demolished, with the free space being used as a courtyard to wash casks. In 1889, the brew house was done up and reconstructed a bit, with brewing continuing uninterrupted. However, there were a couple of hiccups. By this point, Charles Spate had completed his apprenticeship and was now senior brewer for the company, since Dawson Jr. was mayor and Dawson Sr. had died a few years earlier. We find that he wrote a bit of a complaint in the Brewer's Journal on the 27th of May, 1889. Quote, the brewery is now all open and cannot get the heat up. End quote. This was clearly in reference to the construction that was occurring, causing disruptions to brewing. Luckily, by the end of the year, the construction work was done, and an all-star photo was taken to commemorate the occasion. 
The redesign of the building allowed for an even more expanded operation, with a new kiln being put in, a couple of drying floors, and a new cellar, among other things. According to the ODT, this meant they could now hold 5,000 bags of grain, had a malting floor with just over 830 square metres of space, and could provide 60 hogsheads of beer in one brew, an improvement over the previous 50, and they were brewing up to four or five times a week to keep up with demand. A further 10,000 hogsheads could be matured at any one time in the cellars. The article that this came from praised Spates for their care and quality of their product as it was part of the South Seas exhibition. That's a bit of a change of tune from four years earlier. As this was another world's fair, there was a beer competition which Spates naturally entered, winning three golds and two silvers. After the exhibition, Spates bought the buildings that were used for it and relocated them to the brewery on Rattray Street to use as a stable. Sometime prior to this, the old Spate family home that stood at the back of the site must have been demolished because that's where they put the new buildings. This stable was used to receive barley into the brewery when it arrived by carriage. Once all of this was done, the company's attention turned to the question of the water that they now knew sat beneath them, and how they could access it to make beer. Two steam-powered pumps were brought in to pump the water into a tank, which was basically just a wooden vat on the top floor of the brewery. And on the 8th of August, 1890, the Brewer's Journal simply read, quote, started using our own well water, end quote. This quite simple statement belays what was a significant development, because you may recall that spates had been made with tap water up until this point, so using fresh well water was a major improvement. Before the water got to the vat though, it was used to cool down the previous batch. The water remained a cool 13 degrees Celsius all year round, and was used in what was called a vertical fridge. Basically, they would have a long copper pipe that would coil around with the cold water from the aquifer being pumped up to the vat on the top floor. At the same time, hot wort from the current brew would be trickled down over the pipes. Copper is a great conductor of heat, so the energy from the wort is easily transferred to the water in the pipes, meaning that once the wort reached the bottom, it was cold, and when the water reached the top, it was hot. This saves having to cool the wort in those long containers, which exposed them to the air and contamination. The now hot water could also be used to fill the mash tin, without spending the time to light a fire and heat it all up. So, overall, it was a big time saver. This is apparently still how it is done today. Fun fact, the gills of a fish work in a similar way with the transfer of oxygen from the water into the blood. Another piece of tech that they installed in the brewery was a 12 horsepower engine which powered pretty much all the machines. Next time we will properly introduce what you may call the first major antagonist to spates, and in fact, the wider alcohol industry. The Prohibition Movement. They will make their first move in trying to rid Aotearoa of the devil's juice, 
and we will see how the breweries responded to this crisis, along with the changes that were made to secure Spates' future. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time.